You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 1 through 13, Cities of Refuge. This portion about the cities of refuge is an expansion of what was taught in Numbers 35. In Joshua 20, they obey. These portions need to be studied together to get a fuller picture. The Levites were assigned 48 towns within the areas inherited by the other tribes. The number of towns each tribe gives to the Levites was to be in proportion to the size and territory of their tribe. Many towns were to be given from a tribe that had many towns, a few towns from one that had few. So this was equitable treatment not equal treatment. And they were to divide up the areas east and west of the Jordan into three sections, and each of these regions would have a city of refuge. Deuteronomy 19, 1-3 says, When the Lord your God has destroyed the nations whose land he is giving you, and when you have driven them out and settled in their towns and houses, then set aside for yourselves three cities in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Determine the distances involved and divide into three parts the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, so that a person who kills someone may flee for refuge to one of those cities. So it says when, not if, God has destroyed the nations whose land he is giving you. So this was sure. So six of the 48 towns with pasture lands were given to the Levites were to be cities of refuge to which a person who has killed someone accidentally may flee. So it says they will be places of refuge for the, from the avenger so that anyone accused of murder may not die before they stand trial before the assembly. These six towns you give will be your cities of refuge. Give three on this side of the Jordan and three in Canaan as cities of refuge. These six towns will be a place of refuge for Israelites and for foreigners residing among them, so that anyone who has killed another accidentally can flee there. So far, three cities have been established east of the Jordan. They are listed in Deuteronomy 4, 41-43. Then Moses set aside three cities east of the Jordan, to which anyone who had killed a person could flee, if they had unintentionally killed a neighbor without malice aforethought. They could flee into one of these cities and save their life. The cities were these, Bezer in the wilderness plateau for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. So Moses obeyed and established these three cities, and Joshua would obey and establish the other three cities. And if God expanded their territory further, they were to add another three cities to this number, theoretically increasing them to nine. So the purpose of the cities of refuge that God established for the children of Israel was to provide a place to flee while awaiting a fair trial. But in a case of murder, justice was carried out by the nearest relative called the Avenger of Blood. This was not an issue if it was premeditated murder. God demanded capital punishment. But if this was a case of involuntary manslaughter, there needed to be a trial. 
so the accused person needed protection until they could stand trial. And this was a provision for both Israelites and foreigners who lived among them. These cities needed to be close enough to most other towns so that they could flee there quickly. Therefore, God assigned three on the east side of the Jordan and told them to choose three more cities once they arrived in Canaan. As I said, the other cities would be named later. The cities of refuge would always be within a day's journey. And over time, small changes were made so that it was even easier to access these cities. The road to it was to be required to be smooth and clearly marked. Then God explains the difference between murder and manslaughter. Intent. If anyone strikes someone a fatal blow with an iron object, that person is a murderer. The murderer is to be put to death. Or if anyone is holding a stone and strikes someone a fatal blow with it, that person is a murderer. The person is to be put to death. Or if anyone is holding a wooden object and strikes someone a fatal blow with it, that person is a murderer. The murderer is to be put to death. So the avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death. When the avenger comes upon the murderer, the avenger shall put the murderer to death. If anyone with malice aforethought shoves another or throws something at them intentionally so that they die, or if out of enmity one person hits another with their fist so that the other dies, that person is to be put to death. That person is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when they meet. So these are clear cases of murder, with or without a weapon, and justice is to be carried out. Deuteronomy 19, 11-13 is clear about intentional murder. But if out of hate someone lies in wait, assaults and kills a neighbor, and then flees to one of these cities, the killer shall be sent for by the town elders, be brought back from the city, and be handed over to the avenger of blood to die. Show no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood, so that it may go well with you. But if without enmity someone suddenly pushes another or throws something at them unintentionally, or without seeing them drops on them a stone heavy enough to kill them, and they die, then since that other person was not an enemy and no harm was intended, the assembly must judge between the accused and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send the accused back to the city of refuge to which they fled. The accused must stay there until the death of the high priest, who was anointed with the holy oil. So this marked the end of one era and the beginning of another. And Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19, 5 and 6 gives an example of involuntary manslaughter. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice aforethought. So the man knows how this could look. 
They were out together. His axe head is buried in his neighbor's head, who is very clearly dead. Someone must pay. It's the duty of his neighbor's nearest relatives to exact justice on behalf of their dead relative. And as soon as his body is discovered, they'll put the facts together with the absent man, and a manhunt will ensue. What to do? Where to go? There were no legal aid clinics, no police stations, and no 911 to call. The man's only option? Drop the axe handle and run, as fast and as far as he could, possibly never see his family again. So here we see some of the same actions, like throwing something or pushing a person, but the difference is on whether it was intentional or unintentional. Also, the past relationship with the person is a factor, as is the suddenness of it, which today is called a crime of passion. So the victim may not have seen the, uh, not have been seen by the person throwing or dropping the object which caused their death. So all these factors must be considered when judging the case. The accused was safe as long as they stayed in the city until their trial. If they were found guilty, they would be executed. If they were innocent of murder, they could remain and continue to live in one of those cities. So the purpose of these places was to give the person a chance to have his day in court. It saved him from the avenger of blood, the near relative of the dead person, so that he could tell what happened, instead of just being presumed guilty and summarily executed. The place of asylum was used in cases of manslaughter or accidental death. The facts of the case needed to be determined, and that would make all the difference in sentencing. But if the accused ever goes outside the limits of the city of refuge to which they have fled, and the avenger of blood finds them outside the city, the avenger of blood may kill the accused without being guilty of murder. The accused must stay in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Only after the death of the high priest may they return to their own property. So there was a limit placed on this exile of sorts. Once the current high priest would die, they could return to their own tribal inheritance. The Mishnah states that traditionally the high priest's mother would supply clothing and food for the asylum seekers so that they wouldn't wish for the death of her son. Then a few general comments. So this is to have the force of law for you throughout the generations to come, wherever you live. So this was the law of the land throughout Israel for all time. Then anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. So the standard for capital punishment was to be based on multiple witnesses. If there was only one witness to the murder, the person would be charged with manslaughter instead of murder, and this ensured that a person was not executed based on false testimony of one person. So the congregation was tasked with determining the motive in the death. If it could not be determined with certainty, or if there were not multiple witnesses, they erred on the side of caution and went with the lesser charge of manslaughter and allowed the person to claim refuge. Then, do not accept a ransom for the life of a murderer who deserves to die. They are to be put to death. And this meant that they should not take a bribe to exonerate a person 
that they know to be guilty of murder. Do not accept a ransom for anyone who has fled to a city of refuge, and so allow them to go back and live on their own land before the death of the high priest. So they had to ensure that a person who was using the provision of cities of refuge must abide by the rules, or else they'd forfeit their lives. Do not pollute the land where you are. Bloodshed pollutes the land, and atonement cannot be made for the land on which blood has been shed, except by the blood of the one who shed it. Do not defile the land where you live, and where I dwell, for I the Lord dwell among the Israelites. So even when death was inadvertent, the shedding of blood polluted the land. If the whole land became polluted, God would no longer dwell among them. So murder needed to be atoned for by the death of the murderer because people were made in the image of God. Genesis 9, 5 and 6 Also notice the many terms and phrases that are still used in our system of law and justice today. Accused, manslaughter, murder, malice aforethought, testimony, stand trial, witnesses, and no harm was intended. So, Verse 14, Boundary Markers Do not move your neighbor's boundary stones set up by your predecessors in the inheritance you receive in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Later, this will be reinforced in the ceremony of blessings and curses. Cursed is anyone who moves their neighbor's boundary stone. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Proverbs 22.28 says, Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. And do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless, for their defender is strong. He will take up their case against you. So this was basically lying by misrepresentation and stealing property by moving fence posts. Verses 15-21, to 21, False Witnesses In the days before our modern forensics, like fingerprints, blood type, DNA, or even video evidence, they depended on eyewitness testimony. They must not convict on meager evidence. Because in these cases of manslaughter, where the death penalty was a possibility, the testimony of witnesses was so important, Moses gives instructions. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So this tied back to the Ninth Commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. So this command primarily relates to witnesses in court being truthful so that there can be a just and stable society. Most societies recognize the importance of this and have strict penalties for perjury, although it is not as drastic as the Mosaic Law. So Moses addressed what would happen if there were false witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, The two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, 
than do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil be, thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So these were the statutes regarding safeguarding against false witnesses, because to intentionally misrepresent the truth before the courts was as if they were showing contempt toward God himself, because he is a God of truth and justice. If they were found to give false testimony, then the punishment that would have gone to the accused went to the accuser instead. This may have included death. And there is an example of this in the Bible, but it was done by a pagan king, Darius, in Babylon. And he also exceeded the penalty, including the entire family of the guilty men. So it's in Daniel 6.24. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So unfortunately, we don't see many cases where this was actually carried out. Instead, they tolerated and encouraged idolatry throughout the nation, which led to their expulsion from the land to Assyria and Babylon. So the purpose of their adherence to this statute and purging the evil from among them was so that the rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. So it would have a deterrent effect. And they were to show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This principle of legal justice ensured a punishment equal to the crime and prevented extremes of retaliation or leniency. So these concepts are not applied in our culture. Now, lying isn't a problem, just getting caught lying. The purpose of jail is punitive and reformative. The name penitentiary comes from the idea of doing penance or paying for your crimes more than being repentant. The hope is that society will be safer and the person will pay his debts to society. People are reluctant to call evil what it is and prefer to assign blame to mental illness or poor upbringing, both of which can be factors but fail to recognize that evil exists. So scarlet threads. What scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or application to the gospel do we find in this chapter? That God appointed such places as cities of refuge shows his grace and his concern for justice. He has not changed. We can run to him and confess, be heard, and find safety from the wrath of God in the grace of God through Jesus. The six cities of refuge were within a day's journey. If we search for God, we will find him, for he is not far from any one of us. Um, the road to it was required to be smooth and clearly marked. Similarly, we find no impediments to Christ in the gospel itself. And the preachers of the gospel point the way to the only refuge. This directive to build cities of refuge on the surface was a practical solution for a just society. But it is a scarlet thread. 
It is a picture of Jesus and the protection from judgment we experience when we are found hidden in him. Christ is our city of refuge. You and I aren't falsely accused. We really are guilty. We are guilty of a capital crime. We are responsible for the death of the king's son. Our situation could not be worse. Yet the king himself provides sanctuary for his enemies. We flee to the very one we have wronged. When we look up into his face, what do we find? Censure? Condemnation? Wrath? Oh no, we find forgiveness, shelter, safety, security. What we deserve is everlasting punishment. What we receive is pardon and the benevolent protection and care of the very one we have wronged. According to Joshua 20, 4 and 5, when the fugitive arrived at the entrance to the city, he was required to state the facts of his case. Since it was not a trial, they were required to admit him and provide a dwelling place for him. They were not to turn him over to his pursuers. Doesn't Christ also take us in and provide for us? He never turns us away, even after he's heard our story. Indeed, we're required to repent to gain entrance. The gates of the city were open day and night. We can also flee to Christ for refuge at any time. And once we are safe in Christ, he will not turn us back over to our enemies. However, if we leave our refuge, we have no hope, because there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. The cities of refuge were not for the Israelites alone, but for any foreigner who lived in Israel. This prefigured the inclusion of the Gentiles in the gospel. The promise to Abraham was so that all the nations of the world would be blessed. And while the person was in the city of refuge, they were safe. No one could harm them. But if at any time they left, they were on their own. They could be killed with impunity. Likewise, since we are in Christ, we are safe and secure. But if we reject the only solution God has provided, there are no other sacrifices to cover our sins. We are lost. These places were for those guilty of the death of another person, but not for intentional murder. We may not have murdered someone, but we are guilty of it if we have hated them in our hearts. If a person fled to the city of refuge but died just outside the wall, how tragic! A person outside of Noah's Ark would drown. A person who is within a yard of Christ but has not trusted in him will be lost. It is an awful thing to die just outside of safety. The person had to stay there until the death of the high priest, intimating that someone had to die for the death of one made in God's image. Then they could return to their land of inheritance. Jesus had to die so that we could leave our place of exile and receive our inheritance. The case was dismissed when the high priest died. Likewise, because of the death of this high priest, we are free. God provided these cities of refuge so that people could have hope of justice and they would not die. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and even now he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God demanded the death of the murderer in case of 
cases of premeditated murder, because people are made in the image of God. Human life has value, therefore capital punishment is still valid in the New Covenant, with the same safeguards of witnesses and a trial to assess, assess motives. The cities of refuge were planned into the promised land from the beginning. We have a place to flee. Christ is our city of refuge. They were safe from the one who desires our destruction, the enemy of our souls. We flee to the only one who can be our protector, the one who designed the place of refuge into his plans from the beginning. The cities were for those who fled from their sins, not from those who wanted to be sheltered as they continued in them. When we flee to Christ, we forsake our sin. They were not to move landmarks, which was lying about without speaking, as well as stealing land. We are not to steal, but to be content with what God has given us. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. The comparison is from lesser to greater. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? That's Hebrews 10:28 and 29. They required two witnesses in a capital case, so that false witnesses who lied jealously uh, uh, with hatred or desire for gain were, were less likely. Jesus said in matters of church discipline, two witnesses were required, as did Paul. Paul told Timothy not to entertain an accusation against an elder unless there were two or three witnesses. Jesus used this rule to prove that he was who he claimed to be, since he had more than two witnesses who testified on his behalf, himself and his father. In the New Covenant, false witnesses were brought forward against Jesus and Stephen. Both times it resulted in the unlawful death of the defendant. They were to show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This principle of legal justice ensured a punishment equal to the crime and prevented extremes of retaliation or leniency. Jesus explained the law's true meaning when he confronted the Jews of his day for taking this law of the courts and using it for personal vengeance. You've heard it said uh, that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So this meant they were not to retaliate for insults, assaults on dignity, lawsuits to gain personal assets, demands on their liberty, or requests for personal property. So this was a full surrender of personal rights. The phrase about turning the other cheek is not about submitting to violence, but to insult, since they are slapped on the right cheek. This would be done with the left hand, so it was meant as an insult. Um, they were to be truthful witnesses, because to be otherwise was to show contempt towards God. 
who is a God of truth and justice. You've been listening to the podcast Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Deuteronomy chapter 20. May God bless the study of his word.